you're standing in a grassy plain. It is raining heavily. In your left hand, you're holding a crumpled, dampened letter belonging to your loved one. In your right hand, you're holding a katana blade stained with blood. Before you is the is the brutalized corpse of your enemy, but also your lover, who has been your enemy this entire time. Matthew, what do you do? I finally return the letter to its sender after wiping it, the blood off my katana with it. And I say, the postage is paid. You want to read the letter? <clears throat> for 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 drama, uh, drama's sake? I've read the letter numerous times in my life as I've journeyed far across this land to defeat my lover in combat. The bulk of the letter is essentially just crudely drawn uh, dick pictures. <laughs> it's just a dick butt. <laughs> with... <laughs> It consists entirely of one large dick butt, and below it says, you've been cucked. (laughs) Signed, my lover, top weed Hitler 420. Signed, my lover's boyfriend. (laughs) My lover's boyfriend, weed Hitler 420. Mm -hmm. And under... You flip the page over, and it's just, like, a shopping list. Yeah, it's actually just printed on an old receipt. <laughs> good. What a, what a good opening. Fierceful. Dramatic, even. That's so, what we're all about here on Friendendum, just drama and eating potatoes. Drama and um, revenge killing. For <laughs> cucking, apparently. Speaking of revenge killings, how's your week been, Ruben? I revenge killed so many people. Yeah. I took care of some some loose strings. Uh, my betrayer in my old company, as well as my childhood friend who deigned to, um, who deigned to stab me in the back at the at a critical moment in both our lives. I've just um, destroyed their both of their bodies in one fell swoop. I am wielding, as you know, as as fans of the show might know, I'm. Always, I am never seen without my giant stone slab of a sword. It's basically a, a sword meant for smashing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I am now without opponents, without any antagonists, without rivals. My and in the wake of this newfound freedom and emptiness, I find that the only thing that has kept me going is my unsustainable rage. And without a target for my for my anger and for my feelings of betrayal, you know, it's it's been hard. It's been hard. Understandable. I mean, it it has been two days since you killed your last opponent, and that's mm-hmm. a long time to go uh, with with uns, unsated bloodlust. I mean, I understand. It has been, and S- since the law won't help me. Um, well, the law has been very gracious in, in, in turning a blind eye, uh, towards all my, all my, um, smash, smash assassinations, let's call them, like a little fun portmento. As, I mean, th- we have to acknowledge the privilege here, that goes back to your time when you saved, uh, Detective McGillicuddy's son, 
And since mm-hmm. then, he, you've sort of had a man on the inside in the police department. Yeah, um, the detective's son who is married to, like, the, the chief attorney of justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, basically, he, he asked me, like, Ruben will, for two years, go on a quest of um, an unquenchable vengeance. Please do not send any cops after him or attempt to put a legal impediment in his way because there's nothing that will keep him from his from attaining his dark goals and he was he's been very he's been very courteous so thanks thanks district attorney if you would like to be one of ruben's um unassailable hey you want to be sacrificed yeah if you want to if you want to be slaughtered in uh ruben's blinding uh bloodlust which now uh finds itself uh, flailing out directly into the void you can tweet at us at friendendum uh and you know we'll be happy to set you up with uh showdown battle with ruben okay but seriously though uh there have i have received numerous requests on my time on twitter uh of of people from various backgrounds um that i that i killed them in like a sexual way, mm-hmm. uh, I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand the the horny teens of today, of the present day, and I I'm not I'm not see I'm not feeling the you know the, erot- the erotica the raw sexual force in you know please end my life with your strong jaw, like where where does the where does the horny come into that sentence? Well, as we. I mean, if you had paid attention in biology class, you would know that the stem cells that form teeth are the same cells that form human genitalia. So essentially, <laughs> oh, each Jesus Christ, each tooth is a is a little bit like a tiny clitoris. Oh, so have you ever seen the movie Teeth? No, I haven't. Okay, because I think that's that's what that movie is about. <laughs> okay, well, with that uh, knowledge going in, I think I'll be more prepared to see it than uh, most people. Okay. That's why that's why sugar is actually a really good addition to your diet, because as you wear down the enamel on your teeth, you're getting closer to the sexual center of the tooth. Oh yeah, and and. Oh, no, no, I understand. And as you continue to consume and, you know, wear away the your body's natural protection from, like, a constant state of euphoria, mm-hmm. which is really what your teeth are. They're trying to prevent you. They're trying to, it, like, this this teeth hasn't haven't uh, existed for over 50 years. They're actually, like, a recent evolutionary development mm-hmm. because our bodies have adapted to, like, the current economic system of capitalism where we need to focus on productivity and accomplishing labor and, you know, suffering all the time. And with pleasure zones in our mouth, whenever we just ate something, like we chewed on some beef jerky or just chewed some bubblegum, it were just coming everywhere. Like, that's not, it's not conducive to... Uh, to structured labor force? No, it's not. I mean, it's also why meth addicts are such great lovers. It's true. Yeah. I don't. I wouldn't know, but I. I'm gonna. I'm gonna believe you on this one. Well, I mean, if you ever look in someone's mouth and all you see is just ragged pulp, you know that they they get down real hard because they have they've achieved their sort of 
constant state of sexual euphoria. And if you've ever brushed someone's teeth for them, that's like the ultimate exchange in sexual power and pleasure. Yeah, there was originally going to be a sequel to Nine and a Half Weeks in the 90s that was uh, every six months. And it was actually about a torrid love affair between a dental hygienist uh, and a equity broker from New York. And really, he in the entire movie revolved around this like this real this land this piece of real estate that he just couldn't sell. And every time he got into a bad deal, he got punched in the mouth by an angry capitalist. So he had to come back to you know the dentist. But he caught himself in like in in this weird vicious cycle or like this paradox even because he needed to sell you know, the land. But if he didn't sell the land, he wouldn't get punched in the teeth, and he w- would have no reason to visit his sex dentist. Yeah, I remember that uh, J.G. Ballard originally tried to write Crash about getting punched in the mouth, that it was originally about being sexually excited by having your teeth broken, but it didn't... You know, most people are not ready to face sort of the deep sexual center of the human soul. So yeah, he had to use like, he had to use a metaphor, and that's where the car crashes come from. Yeah, like the what? What's the movie with Jason Statham? Is that Crank? Crank? Oh yeah, no, Crank. Jason Statham was not in the movie Crash, which is a, diff- like a, a different thing. I think it's a, uh, I think it's a comparable sexual psychosis going on. Right. In the first movie, Jason Statham needed to have like shock therapy all the time to keep his dick up. And yeah. in the second movie, he needed to, like, oh, no, that's the first movie needed adrenaline. In the second movie, he needed, like, shock therapy all the time. Yeah. And in the I... third movie, the most recent movie, he just needed to, like, chew gum all the time. And he, like, it was like an up situation where at the, the final scene of the movie, he just was chewing so much gum and blew, like, one big bubble that he just lifted up and breached the atmosphere. And now somewhere in outer space, Jason Statham is having an orgasm. For those of us who who are listeners who don't know, maybe you're a little bit too young. The we're super horny all the time. The the crank movies were essentially the setup of the the film is that Jason Thatham is is visited by a very tiny succubi who attaches themselves to his boner uh, via their their single sexual orifice, and he has to maintain. A boner all the time to give them sexual pleasure or they will steal his soul i've i've read a, a japanese comic that goes like this. <laughs> good i'm good. glad that are, i could we... i i that just casually i could be a, a hentai mangaka Casual, casual hentai. That's what we're about. Yeah, casual hentai uh, is our new offshoot podcast. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, Important but True, the new Idle Thumbs podcast, but it's about what would happen to our world if our particular uh, sexual realities came true. Uh, wow. No, I'm I'm reminded of this one other comic that I once read. I'm I'm quite the aficionado. I'm a liter I'm a literature enthusiast, you mm-hmm. might call it. And there was one comic about how uh, 
one young man was able to achieve a bathtub full of vigor every time he achieved spiritual ascendancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll have to send me the, the ISBN number for that one. I'll have to check that mm-hmm. out. Uh, Is, was that you, in the LA Review of Books? I think I read about I'll send, that one. Yeah, I'll send you a Kindle. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Uh, well, anyway, I think we should go into how our, our week was. That's, 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 I, 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 supposedly that's what our podcast is about, but we're just really horny folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, Ruben. So, yeah. Oh. What, what, who's starting? You should start, I think. I'm going to eat start. some mashed potatoes you... while you tell while you tell me how it was. <laughs> oh, right. This is breakfast hour for you. Bre- um, bref- breakfast cast. Breakfast cast. Just woke up, baby. Um, how has my week weekend? Um, uh, I got thoroughly, I think, I think one of the highlights in my week has been that I've gotten thoroughly owned by my brother-in-law with a single text. Okay. Explain. So, if you, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I'm a big, big fan of uh, Yoko Taro, Japanese visionary and game designer. And he just, uh, he just made a game. He released a game called Near Automata. And I've been playing that a lot. Super good. Um, but my brother-in-law, ever the internet detective, went, uh, went on to YouTube and searched for some videos about like gameplay footage, maybe some secrets, some lore implications. Mm-hmm. And he found um, the video, which I'm going to pull up right now. Um, one moment, please. Because people will probably know that Nier Automata is a pretty horny game as well. Yeah. One one man um, from Japan envisioned, one man from the ch- Japan and en- his... envisioned what if the robots were us, but also horny. What if, what if one of the robots had just like a giant ass? Mm-hmm. That's really all Nier Automata is about. Um, so yeah, he sent me the video Nier Automata, great butt walkthrough, how to remove 2B skirt. Which is uh, a two minute video that shows you how to remove one layer of clothing from uh, the main character of the game, which um, shows her in just her one piece leotard, which emphasizes her rump. Now, adding to this text, to this video link that he sent me, he said. <coughs> So this is what you're into, huh? <laughs> and that's and that's it. And I've like I've since drafted six different responses in an attempt to save face, but nothing nothing can undo the damage that has been done to my psyche and my confidence. I think the master stroke is to one up him. You gotta you got to pull a Donald Trump and punch back. You got to say, no, this is what I'm into and find uh, the outer limits of your own sexual desire and then just send whatever image that is to him. So like a sexy centaur. Oh, yeah. You need you need centaurs. Uh, you need some sort of like, you know, body splitting through sexual orgasm. You need what? I don't know. Matthew? I'm just I'm throwing stuff out there. Matthew, just... what are you talking about? Listen, I've touched I've touched the outer limits. 
It's oh. like it's like uh, when when you're like uh, when Bones asks Spock what it's like to die, and Spock deflects the question because he has so because uh, Bones has no frame of reference. It's a little bit like that. I can't really explain it to you. You're just gonna have to experience it. You just you like your spirit has reached like the farthest rim of sexual inclination. Yeah. I see. Yeah, that's the way you do. That's the way you do this, and then he, then hopefully he'll just never talk to you again. <laughs> It'd be pretty awkward because he's gonna marry my sister in like two months, and I gotta be like the best man. Oh, good. You should. You should. Uh, in Dutch culture, do they have the tradition of like sending the newlywed couple off with like a sexy gift basket? What? Some, some it, it's a recent thing, but like some at some American weddings, you'll like you'll put like the best man or the best man and the and the maid of honor will put together like a honeymoon basket of like fun, sexy stuff. I don't know why. I grew up in a weird Christian household, and we would do this. So, uh, I think you, grew you up just, in a mad, nasty household. You just gotta load that thing up with. Uh, the the weirdest stuff you can find online. Just um, like a, a a copy of the of the PS4 game Chill Anarchy. Yeah, yeah. And um, maybe some Katawa Shoujo. Just as well. Just a long running uh, porn series about vib ribbon. No, <laughs> no, don't, don't, don't sexualize vib. She's my friend. <laughs> Your friend is almost 35 now, and the clock's ticking. Like, they gotta get on She's... that stuff. Vib Ribbon is ace. She's not... asexual, Matt. Not all asexual people... Not all asexual people uh, don't enjoy any form of sexual pleasure. That's uh, erasing the spectrum of beauty from human culture. True, but she's a... She's sex-aversive asexual. Okay. So, because you don't want to imagine her exploring her body, her her luscious, angular her, body, her 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 body box. Yeah, her verts. You don't yeah. want her to. Do you want you don't want her to let her verts like loose and run free, because yeah, it would, just, it would show make you uncomfortable. All her polygons. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. Matt, that's disgusting. I'm gonna have to. I'm all for a good quip. Now and then, like a little joke, a little little sexual tingle teetering on the on the brink of comedy. But this is just no, this is just gross. You're right. I'm gonna have to gonna have to pull the pull the fishing reel a bit back on the on the on the great content you're dishing out here. I apologize to my friends and family for this bit. I'm I'm going to send them this episode, all of them. All of my family. All your friends, family, dogs. <laughs> I have a dog? Happy birthday. Yay! I have a dog! Yo, we wanted to keep it a surprise, but you had to go and run your mouth with Tori. <laughs> so now we're going to have to show your dog how dirty you are and then give it to you wrapped in a bow. So now we're going to give you like a Labrador who will divert all energy going into sex. Careful where you're going with this. Mm. Mm. 
No, Jesus Christ. So you got okay. owned, you got owned this week by your by your brother. No, your brother no, okay, no, we're not we're not gonna skip past this. I'm not gonna let this slide. Okay, it's that we've already released an episode called "This Podcast Was a Mistake." Can't do it. We can't do two. God, this is not a mistake. This is who we are. We need to embrace it. <laughs> no, it's this is not me. This is this is the Persona Four moment of me meeting my shadow self, and I'm not. I'm just gonna walk away and leave that boss character to exist forever and i'm never gonna confront it ever hey we all have a path to walk if yours is uh self-enforced ignorance that's okay by me yes i'm 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 volcel now Uh, oh (laughs) you're storing up that essence no i'm just this conversation has repulsed me thoroughly so i'm going to i'm gonna join uh michael lutz's Valsell army. Alright. And never hashtag never fuck. Thank you for believing in me. While my work here is done then. Okay. Hey Matt, how was your week? My week was very tiring. This was my first full week at Starbucks. Uh so I felt my body growing. My my big strong boy body growing with each step I took across the floor uh i would say probably my biggest accomplishment of this week that i'm really pleased with at work is i impressed my boss by cleaning out the entire milk uh fridge (laughs) Uh, like they were like here you gotta go in the back and clean everything and but also this fridge needs wiping down because it's gross uh, but don't worry if you don't get to that. So I decided that I w- that was the one thing I was going to do. And I lifted over 300 milk cartons out of a big fridge and I wiped the whole thing down. And it was disgusting because, like most people, people just cleaned. Everyone who'd worked there had just cleaned the part you can see when you're looking at the shelves yeah. they hadn't taken the shelves out so there was just an inch of black rotten milk under so, every like, shelf yeah had like the back half of the of the tray was just corroded by all the lactic acid yeah it was very gross and uh so i cleaned that out and i felt kind of cool i felt like i'd accomplished a real thing that had changed the world i am the milk cleaner yeah hygiene is hygiene is important honestly and... This aside from that, I've been watching Hannibal, which I really enjoy again, over again. Because in this effort to to understand my own humanity, I need to watch shows about the most inhuman people. Yeah, like Hannibal, them. the the hit musical about the the Roman, the Car- Carthaginian general. Yeah, it's Lin it's Lin Manuel Miranda's next musical is about the Carthaginian general Hannibal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the fact that he uh, was a neoliberal. <laughs> he's gonna, he's gonna cross the Alps and he's gonna instill a two-party system in Rome. Consuls be gone. Consuls be gone. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I can't wrap that. that I I actually have only listened to Hannibal to uh, Hannibal to uh, <laughs> to Hamilton once, so I can't do any uh, Hannibal rap jokes. Fuck, I said it again. Alright, cool. Good morning. I, I Apparently I really want a Hannibal um, 
musical to exist. Well, we can make it happen. Can we? Can we do that right now? Podcast. We need it. We need someone to produce a beat for us. If anyone in our our fan base wants to lay down some fat tracks for the, yeah, if, if anyone's got like a copy of FL Studio Eleven, mm-hmm. uh, send send some fruity loops our way. Yeah, send us some loops. We'll we'll do a Hannibal cast. We'll we'll do the whole thing. Yeah. On the topic of Hannibal, I recently found out that you know, um, dude went all the way. You know, east, uh, west of Carthage, crossed onto Spain, uh, bouldered his way through France, crossed the Alps, and tried to take over Rome with like a tenth of his total workforce. No, not workforce, military force. And he failed. But then the dude continued to roam Italy for seven years after that. What are you going to do? That's pretty good. What? Oh, I mean, what else are you going to do? Are you going to go home? The, I mean, that's a pretty. You've traveled like two years to do this one thing you've been tasked to. You've been assigned this one task to take over Rome, and it's like, nah, that's not gonna happen. So I'd imagine you'd like, yeah, you would go home, but no, nah, they just hung out in Italy for seven years, just chilling. Was he raiding? Was he like do it, or was he literally just hanging out? He just occupied the whole southern part of the peninsula. Uh, he probably, he was, he was like, no, nah, dog, I got it, I got it, just wait, I got it. <laughs> this, is, this is brilliant. He was like Folks. the equivalent of like not wanting to stop and ask for directions. He's like, no, 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 I'm good. Good, we're here, <laughs> we'll just go deeper. There, like, Rome 1 is here, if we go further into Italy, there's gonna be Rome 2, right guys? I'm gonna, I'm gonna grow some new big strong boys, and eventually those boys will grow up and will attack Rome. Yeah. And you know why he left Italy? Why? Because he got a letter from his mom to tell him to come home. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, his Aww. mom asked him to come home, Queen of, like, um, Dio, Queen of Carthage. Aww. Is that Dio? I think it's Dio. What a it's, sweet, it's what sweet. a sweet boy. Total beta, beta male. Yeah. Sorry, God. It's cucked. I no, guess. that's cool. Like, like even the the one of the most ferocious badass dudes in history loved his mom. So, that's good. I think the real, I think the real uh, lesson there is that uh, loving your mother can drive you crazy. Make you do horrible <laughs> things. Wait, what? I think I think that the reality there is that a strong maternal relationship uh, can be actually incredibly bad. So being distant from your children is healthy for them. Otherwise, lest they become horrible authoritarian generals that try to destroy the world. Tell me about your mother, Matthew. Tell me about your mother, Matthew. Uh, my mom was, as I remember it, a very typical helicopter mother. Uh, like, uh, so helicopter meaning, like, um, <clears throat> extremely protective. Oh, okay. Like, everything is very dangerous. You can't handle this. We gotta keep you inside. Stuff like that. 
Oh, yeah, I got one of those. Yeah. I got one of those moms. The ones like, oh, we have to... No, you're not ready for any responsibility whatsoever. We're going to keep you practically sheltered for 18 years, and now you're an adult. you got to figure out this, these things, these simple tasks you could have been doing all your life, but we didn't let you. you got to do them yourself now. So yeah, when, when society expects you to already know better, so good luck. Uh... Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, it's coming from a place of love. So, it, I well, guess. I think it comes from a place of love and a place of one's own mental insecurities, right? Like, my mother yeah. was a... She had OCD. She had anxiety. So I think she project, projected her own anxiety onto me as an object of her affection. You know? Hmm. Like, she loves through fear, so... Her way of trying to manifest her love was through, like, protecting me. So, it wasn't great. (laughs) But I didn't... Mm -hmm. But listen, I didn't join the military. I didn't go to Iraq. I didn't try to topple any regimes. I think she did okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's what they they always say. Like, the... um... Like, the way that your parents raise you, that's like, you, you raise your own children the opposite way? I think you try to... Yeah, you end but up it, but you end up doing like per- perpetuating things, which is really hard. Yeah. Which is why I don't think, personally, like I would probably never have a kid until I felt that I understood myself well enough. I think a lot of people have kids because, in the same way that they want to have a dog, and I don't mean <laughs> that to lessen it. But it is a personal but, choice. It's but a it's about it's about them. Idea. Yeah, it's about how having this thing will make them feel and that's maybe not a great reason to have a kid uh Mm, i think it's simultaneously the best and the worst reason but you gotta like you you gotta do it for yourself but you gotta know that it's gonna be uh very hard very uh like intensive experience raising a child so Yes, do it for yourself, but also make sure that you're ready to do it. I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but what I, one thing I learned after my mom passed away was that I was literally created because when my brothers went off to college, my mother didn't know how to exist as a human being outside of being a parent at that point. Ooh, yeah. So she went off of her birth control without telling my father. And because some... they were because they were Catholic, they kept me. Yeah, that's some that's some very toxic patriarchy right there. We have gone we've gone on a a fucking journey this episode, by the way. We're only thirty one <laughs> minutes in and we have gone from straight horny to talking intensely about my mother, which you know, say what you want about modern psychology, but Jung was at least observant. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, Freud, Freud had some points, even though he was, you know, wrecked by syphilis. Yeah, I look at a person wrecked by syphilis, and I say that that is a person who doesn't understand the world. If they did, <laughs> they wouldn't have syphilis. <laughs> I mean, at that's the time, the no one knew syph- what it was. That's the syphilis fallacy. It was very common in the 19th century. The, the syphilis fallacy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. 
Hey. But, yeah, like, I've had, like, my mom is still alive, and I've had this conversation with her uh, a couple of times where she, like, her marriage with my dad is on thin ice. Um, and it's, it's, it's freezing over again, which is good. Uh, but there, there was a point where, like, a, a divorce was in sight. And one of the reasons was that she, um, um, is that she didn't feel, or she felt bored all the time mm-hmm. and feeling bored, uh, because, you know, my dad's off to work most of the time. She's, um, because of a disability, she can't really go and do work of her own. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm also not there a lot. So she felt bored and boredom can, you know, can contribute to depression, which I suspect her of having. And and also one of the reasons that she's very frustrated with everything is that she doesn't know what to do with herself other than being a wife or a mother. And she's independent enough to realize that she needs like a project or a focus, an energy to focus on of her own. But she also is way bogged down by like societal expectations and obligations that's been imprinted in her. Not to say that she's been totally indoctrinated in, in something called motherhood or something. Sure. But what she's been doing for like she's been married to my father for thirty five years and he's not uh he's not a woke gentleman to say. He's a very <laughs> traditional man in okay. marriage. Uh so the just the habit of taking care of family for 35 years that's hard that's a very hard thing to suddenly start detaching from especially if it's your entire identity and it's an identity that is temporal you know it's a i think any anything we do enough in isolation and in exclusion will change our perception of ourself and if we lose that thing we are going to go through this period of loss and transition and it's really scary to let go of something you know i i think my mother was the same way right she was the homemaker and Mm -hmm. without that identity she kind of didn't know what to do with herself but because of her own mental health issues, she really didn't have a life outside of those things because of her own anxiety and fear. And it ultimately was probably at first, it was something foisted upon her, right? She did it out of a sense of obligation and duty and love. And then when the opportunity to free herself from it presented itself, it was easier to sort of fall back on what she knew, which is really common. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a good way to like solve that problem because I think we do that too. At least I, I do that. There's, I think like one of the root uh, causes of this is like not examining or, or like uh, it's, it, it, it hasn't been, recent or it has been only recent since like mental health like feminism concerned with mental health has looked at middle-aged people but Mm. particularly women and like middle-aged mothers 
uh, who, like, before I, I, like, the, the language before the 90s, I, I want to say, is, like, they were always dismissed as having a midlife crisis, but we never actually went in to see, like, what exactly, what does that mean, and where does gender, where does, you know, race and sexuality fall into that, uh, and in the case for a lot of in traditional marriages, the mothers in traditional marriages, uh, like, this exact feeling, because it's, it's, it's a widespread thing of being reduced by patriarchy to the role of mother, of wife, of not being a person, but being someone's you know, basically caretake, familial caretaker, right. and then having that because, you know, uh, adulthood means distant, uh, among other things, adulthood means familial distance, and, like, once the the connection is so far apart that ye, that mothers don't have anything to fall back on, and I don't mean to, like, reduce mothers to these, you know, overly dependent uh, No, I think women. it's, I think it's, uh, what I see it as is more specific, it's a more specific feminist, uh, or no, more specifically, it's a manifestation of a broader human experience in the context of a traditional sort of, uh, patriarchal system of oppression. You see a similar thing in uh, working class people of all types who work in an industry that shuts down, right? Yeah. Uh, in in America, for example, you've got this. I mean, really, it's a whole culture of people who worked in factories, and their whole life revolved, like their whole cultural identity revolved around their themselves as a worker in these places, and now they are being discarded and it's not of their own choice and they're left without a hold on this old identity and in a way this whole this old identity is no longer valuable to anyone but themselves now i think yeah i get what you mean i think it's more that what sustains the identity um is removed right and, and like the, the foundation upon which uh, like a, a an an identity, a pillar of identity defined as something that gives meaning to a life, stability and meaning to a life. And once that comes under, you know, uh, once that starts becoming brittle, yeah, you see, like mental issues take take place, filling or not even filling the cracks, but worsening them, because you suddenly don't have consistency. And you suddenly have to think about yourself without, like, a mental failsafe. It is a very common problem that I've noticed in myself, in other people, when we let our identities be defined by what other people need from us. That... Mm when our identity is in part based on meeting the needs of another person, then we are bound up in our identity is bound up in something we under, we ultimately can't control. 
because you never can, you don't have, you don't decide when that person stops eating you. They do, right? Mm. And that crosses all sorts of lines. I mean, that's mother and child, that's, you know, wife and husband, that's worker and corporation. It's this willingness to at first it's a desire to receive something in in return perhaps out of this identity but eventually uh it can develop into into a type of codependency and i mean that more broadly than the definitional term of codependency i literally do mean when part of your identity is wrapped up in someone else you I don't think your identity feels as stable as it is when it's entirely your own. If that's mm-hmm. even possible. Yeah, I guess... I guess the tricky part of identity is that it feels more... It always... Everything feels more valid when communicated with another person. Right, exactly. Uh, thoughts, like uh, deep personal anxieties, uh, insecurities, but also friendship uh having a hobby like having a hobby is great but it's even you know what's better than having a hobby telling people about your hobby i have this i have this terrible cycle where i will and i was actually talking about this earlier just before we started recording because i was re i do this thing where i like obsessively watch someone through some like twitter or social media to try to understand how their mind works like by watching what they produce and how they express themselves to see if I can understand their mind or like adopt their way of thinking in order to fix my own brain and one thing that has been coming up recently for me is essentially meeting people who seem to have a more specific sense of self that runs independent of other people and trying to understand where that, how that begins. How does that independence of identity begin? Because what I will do is that when I try to do something, anything, literally anything, that I want to do for myself, I will begin to worry. So I'll be doing the thing. It won't stop me from doing the thing, but I will begin to disconnect from the actual present moment of doing the thing. And I start thinking about how other people who I feel shape my identity or could shape my identity would think about this thing. And then that ultimately becomes critical and then I have I'm I'm essentially like disassociated from the present moment, concerned about this fictitious other moment, and I will get filled with anxiety, and then I need to express that anxiety to expel it. And rather than writing it in a journal so no one can see it to to do it, it's more real and it's more effective if I tell someone, but it's like blowing steam in their face. It's not, there's nothing really reciprocal about it. It's just, I need to express myself. And in order for it to feel real, someone else has to pay attention. 
but it's just uncomfortable negative energy. Like it's just bummer town. And that ends up being, uh, a burden on other people. I mean, it's not the biggest burden in the world, but emotional labor is emotional labor. And I mean, you did a very, like this, this is a very elaborate way of describing or defining venting, which is, you know, a good thing, but venting is exact is, is yes, is giving people, um, your insecurities and your bad feelings, but it's not as big a burden as you make it out to be. I feel you always feel that whatever your whatever negative shit you're tossing at people is going to stain more than it than it actually does. And I mean, any like friends. That's what. This is cliche, but that's what friends are for, among other things. That's true. Like, to help you through to help you through bad moments but also to be a listening ear and when but, they can't but no friendship is is uh ironclad people have limits that's true but it's not like you're only like that's that's always the the pitfall here and that people and, and i get it because uh, i do that too sometimes like we always assume that when we event to people or when we talk about ourselves like we focus on giving or or delivering a negative energy to to people or giving them like a negative package and we forget all the times that we get to be a friend to them or that we can, that we have fun together but we focus we remember these um so so assumed burdens transposed into others right because because you know our mind loves to neg ourselves, to neg itself, but there's always more to a friendship than just what your anxiety about that friendship tells you. Well, what's interesting there is that in a way, we are even in our insecurity, our mind is retaining a sense of control because we believe that our act is of supreme power, right? That our we we see it as I if I do this it's going to be damaging or very potent it's, uh, because I think the mind wants to like believe in its own ability. It's like self-destructive narcissism. It's, yeah, I don't know what I don't know how else to call it, but I know what you're. I know exactly the feeling, and it's it's like. I think it's like the the belief that you are capable of hurting everyone around you, and you constantly are, which is a very weird, very weird self-examination of worth and weight and value. Uh, did you always? Oh. Did you have parents? Oh no, I was gonna say, did you have parents that? Was was your interaction with your parents growing up primarily criticism, primarily praise, or primarily like dialogue? Uh I'd say dialogue. Okay. That Which, makes sense because you're yeah. a lot healthier, mentally well adjusted <laughs> than a lot of people I know. 
Yeah, I got the um, I got the good combo parents. I mean, they're not by far they're not perfect. Right. But my mom, like, she always protected me, shielded me from responsibility, which is not a great parenting technique. But she always did tell me that whatever worries me, I can tell her. Mm-hmm. And that she doesn't care, or th- that's not the wrong way to put it, that she, that she'll support anything I do as long as I don't become unhappy. Interesting. Which is a very good, reassuring... That, that is a good uh, thing. Credo. Yeah. yeah. And my dad was always, like, the, the anchor in the, in the family, always. Right. Like, being realistic to a negative fault, to being a bit of a Debbie Downer, but it did give me, like, the... It, it did give me, like, the necessary realistic insight to always consider, to always gauge that what I think, what I do, what I mean to others, like, how to view that in realistic terms without my own personal bias against myself. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, that I mean, they're not completely responsible for how I turned up, but I think they laid down pieces of the groundwork pretty well. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah, that is sounds that does sound good. Um, Fucking neurotypicals, Jesus, Jesus, Christ, I'm fuck, sorry, everyone. fuck you, son of a bitch. I, um, I deserve that. I deserve that. No, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, what was I gonna say? I notice. So as a child. One thing that I was taught to do or was told to do often was, like, look at how other people act and emulate them. Namely, like, neurotypical people. And so, for me as an adult, there's a tendency to want to do that in any particular situation. To sort of mimic people, to to facilitate communication and to avoid conflict which is really what the training growing up was meant to do was to avoid the whole like hey they're this person is weird let's isolate them but what it does is it prevents me from having my own opinion in a situation and Mm. because i'm not a character on Hannibal, I don't have a perfect vision of what they want either. So <laughs> I'm left with trying to embody this false identity that's neither myself nor them. And it's not good. And that's why I've been really obsessed recently with people who seem self-assured. Like I've been, I've been uh, playing Brennan Chung Blendo game stuff, and sort of watching old interviews with him. And what's fascinating to me about him is he shows remarkably little interest in presenting for other people. Like, he's entirely self-interested in his own stuff. Not in a selfish way, but literally, he is into his own thing and confident in that. And seems to lack uh, 
insecurity when it comes to that stuff. <laughs> I like the way you phrase that. He lacks insecurity. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 human. It's good. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't like there's this idea I think of like, well, if I understand how this person does it, then I can copy them and wake up and be different, but that's not really how people work. Uh, what the, do you ever find when you're online that buddy, I'm always online. when you're, when you're online, when you're always online, when you're watching people, what is it about them? How, like, how do you react to their minds when you experience them? What is, what is the thing you do most often? Uh, what do I do most often online? Besides post and be horny. <laughs> I'm never horny online. What are you talking about? Um, I, poof. Now you're, you're, <laughs> oh, you're putting me in a spot right here and <laughs> using, using that moment to just, uh, eat some mashed potatoes. What would pay to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do mostly online, I guess, is, yeah, respond to other people. Read, I read other people, and I don't try to link that to their psyche or anything. I see their experiences and their thoughts, but I don't try to form like uh, a concrete. I don't. I don't treat tweets as like a holistic. As a whole, as a, something holistic, as a piece of something greater, I just view it as something sporadic, something uh, something that's on their mind, something that's always ad hoc, and it it makes me it always makes me like them more because I don't have to think about like what kind of person they are, but I I see their posts, I see their good good posts, and I like their posts, and like whatever. Whatever portion of their mind spawns such a thing, I'm like, yeah, I'm into that. I'm into that. You can take it. And you can take it as an abstract and isolated thing. I guess so. Like a death, death of the author. <laughs> death of the poster. Death of the poster. You're you're seeing it as a discrete object that you appreciate. There's our there's our episode title. Death of the poster. There it is. Death, Done. There it is, folks. Uh, it's gonna be. It's going to be uh, if AD can draw it, I can I can picture like uh, beautiful a beautiful person wearing their verified sticker being lowered into the ground. <laughs> you know you know what Jacques Lacan said, famous psychoanalyst and philosopher, um, is that in order to communicate with the real, the inexorable, concrete reality that, ex- that exists next to our perception of that reality we have to first make good posts yeah it's true it was the By... be- it was the bedrock of lacanian psychology and philosophy is uh good never stop posting never stop listen folks if you want to we're all stuck we're all stuck in plato's cave we're all looking at this this dope as cave painting uh, or cave shadows even. Then there's a guy with a with like a lantern behind us casting a real flame, casting a flame of like the image that we're seeing projected on the cave wall. 
And if you want to turn around, you want to see the actual reality that's behind us, instead of just uh, a simulacrum, a facsimile of reality, we have to start posting. What what got a ramp up? What Plato didn't understand, even about his own metaphor, was that there's no cell reception inside the cave. To to post, you have to leave the cave, and so in posting itself, you are removing yourself from the unreality into the reality of posting which is the the overarching divine really it is the divine it is the perfect the realm of posting exists on the realm of gods uh and the pantheon the divine every divine godhead is a really good post that we've yet to imagine, that we can't comprehend yet, a post so perfect that the human mind cannot perceive it. Can God, can God make a post so good that not even he himself can like it? I actually had a dream or a daydream recently about God and creationism or creation and posting where essentially the the reality of this dream was that human beings do have a supernatural ability to shape reality but it requires the consent of reality to be shaped and the fact that there are essentially multiple gods existing saying with competing visions of how reality should be that that is literally how we end up with a static constrained universe it's basically what lovecraft tried to write about but he was too racist <laughs> really okay good we're gonna read some lovecraft then lovecraft mm-hmm. lovecraft would have uh, never stopped posting let's be clear Lo- lovecraft Let's not forget, Lovecraft lived in his mom's attic. Which would have been worse during the last election? Scott Adams' blog or Lovecraft's blog? Oh, God. No, I think think Scott Adams is worse because Dilbert is such an iconic, relatable character. Yeah. Lovecraft would be... Lovecraft would be the... the... No, Lovecraft was the Alex Jones of his time. Like being able to see past, like past all, all like the the obstructions, all the conspiracies, and into the truth. What really happened during nine eleven? What's what's really being pumped by the government into our water supplies? More specifically, really, <laughs> I feel like Lovecraft more like, would have been would have like Lovecraft believes in chemtrails. I believe more like Alex Jones might actually just be a Lovecraft character come to life, really. Like he's the he's the herald character that the protagonist meets along the way, that is heated far too late. <laughs> oh my god! Um, it's gonna it's gonna be. Uh... Don't go to Innsmouth. It's full of globalists. <laughs> <laughs> They're turning our freaking people into fish people. They're covered with gay uh, goblin vomit. Those fish people. <laughs> Obama is my president. I only answer to Cthulhu. Yeah. Alex Jones. I, uh... I recently heard about a book 
by the guy who discovered Alex Jones way back when. Apparently, I don't remember. It was a British guy who wrote about conspiracy theorists and essentially found Alex Jones and interviewed and gave him this voice. And the the author concludes that Alex Jones like isn't crazy. <laughs> Not really. He just has lived this persona so long that he doesn't know how to take it off, essentially. Okay, so he is playing 12-dimensional chess, but... All the time, ironically. And he got lost inside the chessboard, and now, like the Deep Space Nine episode, he's inside the game. Yeah, somewhere in, like, the tetrahedron of his mind. Yeah. Somewhere, he's just... Like, there's there's a tiny Alex Jones, like a homunculus... Uh, an Alex Jones homunculus is just beating against the glass walls of his own brain. Mm-hmm. And he can only watch as this dark shadow persona 4 version of himself is controlling his mind, telling him to, or operating, like, the the, the mind, his mind console and making him say, like, uh, Obama is a Muslim, Trump's come increases your power. What if we find out on the final day of Revelation that Alex Jones was the first ironic poster and irony <laughs> consumed him. Lost. Lost to the to the, the shadowy tendrils of irony. Yeah. Never see- never stray too close to, to irony. That's our advice for boys this week. Advice for boys. Don't don't wrap your feelings and the things that you wish to say in irony. Because irony means the opposite of what you truly mean. And by always saying or always hiding what you really mean in the opposite of what you really feel means that the language that you're using to communicate your inner feelings don't correspond with what you're, what you're truly feeling inside, meaning that your sense of reality will be warped and you'll be unable to connect to yourself or to any outside world without making use of irony, meaning you will be lost in a process and you'll end up as uh, a racist. Sorry, but if you if you love irony, then you'll end up racist. It's true. Yeah. Good advice for boys this week. Good advice for boys. Should so, we, on that sh- note... Should we call this one? Are we Have we uh, sort of wandered around the, the border of Jer- the Jericho that is this podcast? Yeah, let me, let me like, empty the, like, the horn... <laughs> like the horn of this episode. Okay. What, what's it called? The 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 what's what's that thing called again? The um, coal. It, there's like this mythological object which like always pours gold. It's like a horn shaped cornucopia. A, cornucopia. That's the one. Yeah. Let's open up this cornucopia of this episode and see what we visited. Um, we visited horny. Mm-hmm. We've visited deep. Issues with our parents. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we've we vaguely about, we vaguely talked about our week. Vaguely talked about our week. Uh, we dissociated so hard we kind of warped through the material of reality itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about. We justified our time online. We justified our time online. We talked about posting, about the philosophy of posting, from a Lacanian sense, and that way. We basically became the ZZX of online. Mm-hmm. It's true. And we ended on 
a little anti-irony note. Yeah. Pro-sincerity. Pro-sincerity. We are uh, very pro-sincerity. If you have I'm feelings, close. just express them all the time. Never stop expressing. Never stop Always. feeling. Never stop. Do you have any... Mwah. Mwah. <laughs> Cut you off with a kiss.